was Thanksgiving week, and, and I was reminded this week that uh, Thanksgiving is a national holiday. It's not a Christian holiday necessarily. It, it wasn't established uh, necessarily because of Scripture. It was established because of uh, the heart of our nation, which was Christian as it was launched. The first Thanksgiving proclamation came out of the uh, Continental Congress before we were ever fully a nation in 1777. And I want to read just a portion of it for you. It was a uh, Thanksgiving Day was to be established that year. It was to be celebrated on the 1st of November. It says, for as much as it is the indispensable duty of all men to adore the superintending providence of Almighty God, to acknowledge with gratitude our obligation to Him for benefits received, and to implore such farther blessings as they stand in need of. And it having pleased him in his abundant mercy, not only to continue to us the innumerable bounties and of his common providence, but also smile upon us in the prosecution of a just and necessary war for the defense and establishment of our inalienable rights and liberties, particularly in that he has pleased in so great a measure to prosper the means used for the support of our troops and to crown our arms with most signal success. It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December, next for solemn thanksgiving and praise. That at one time and with one voice, the good people may express the gratitude feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor. That is about half of it. I won't read the whole thing, but that, that uh, proclamation was made on November the 1st of 1777 to be celebrated that first Thanksgiving in those states who had become united before they had won the war, before we had actually established uh, the United States after the Constitution. Right after that, you had the first Thanksgiving on, set on the fourth week of uh, or the fourth Thursday day of November by George Washington as the first president in 1789. And so Thanksgiving has this long history in our nation. And though it was not established as a Christian holiday, certainly the Christian forefathers who were at the root and the founding of our nation understood that everything that we have Every gift that had been poured out upon this nation, every blessing that this nation received had come from a merciful and loving God. It is his love that drives us to give thanks. I'm going to pause and get personal in a way that I did not expect today because I had some friends show up. And you all know I'm prone to cry a little bit every once in a while. The last couple of weeks have been weird. I've had weird things going on, and part of it had to do with the insurance stuff I was dealing with, the legal stuff I was dealing with. Part of it had to do with, with other things. Uh, just personally, you know, I, I said a couple of weeks ago that, that pastors need pastors sometimes, and every once in a while God shows up in, a, in an un, a, un, unsuspecting way last week. Uh, Greg and Jackie Gillis, who had served at May with me, he'd served as our youth minister for a year. He'd been a coach there for a couple years before that, showed up uh, unsuspecting, and, and I was able to sit with him and worship. Today, uh, probably a, a couple that had as meant as much or more to me than anybody in, in my ministry uh, David and Allison Williams surprised me by showing up in Sunday school. David served with me as a uh, youth and music guy for seven years at May. 
He went from there to pastor in Rising Star and then served uh, for 15 years as associate pastor in a, in a church at Rocky Creek. Allison uh, was in college when I went there, but her dad was the, the head of the pastor search committee that called me to be pastor. Her dad was also superintendent of schools. And Don Rhodes, uh, her father, was probably one of the very closest friends that I had at May. And I actually made a call a couple of weeks ago, and I, I could go on and on, so I'm going I'm to limit it, but I made a call to, to David a couple of weeks ago because I saw something that God had done that I wanted, I wanted to give thanks for. And that's where we come back to this. I would not have made it through the first couple of years had it not been for the leadership, help, and patience of Don Rhodes. He was a, a leader in the community. We actually ordained him as a deacon uh, my first full year in May, and uh, we had a friendship that has lasted. There were times when I did some stupid stuff as a young 24-year-old senior pastor, and Don and his patience, and he knew how to lead people. That's why he was superintendent of the schools, was there to help and provide some guidance. I'd go into his office there at school, and he'd help me. I learned how to pastor a small church. Uh, the first week I was pastor there, I, I met Don. He put me in his van and took me to a high school football game. Uh, I'd been pastor there less than five days. I learned how to pastor uh, a small church because of that. And we saw God move in some mighty ways. I, I was there about a year and a half when we had a revival where we had 62 salvation decisions in those three days. We baptized 42 of them at May. Uh, but what I was thinking of was, had, I, had Don not been patient with me, and, and I don't think that he fully understands the gravity of his impact on the kingdom of God as a school superintendent, had he not been patient with me, I would have never been able to grow and mature and become the, the pastor I was there, and then come here, and for 12 years almost, I had a young man serve under me uh, named Kevin Skinner, who was kind of a city boy. He came here as an, an, an intern and uh, became our youth, uh, he became our children's minister and children and young adults, and then he, he became our youth minister and my associate pastor the last few years. And when he knew that it was time for God to move him to pastor a church, he absolutely initially for a couple years refused to even return the call of any small church who would contact him. He said, I'm not suited to go to a small church. I don't belong in a small town. I have to go to a big city. Well, eventually, as I... Kevin and I continued our relationship, and, and he told me this right before he left to go to Stockdale. He said, I, I know, that, I, I know that, that God's calling me there, and I know that I can pastor in Stockdale because I've learned from you. A revival in the last year and a half has broke out in Stockdale. God is moving in a mighty, mighty way. And I thought about it two weeks ago, and I fully recognized the connection that there's a guy who's struggling right now because Sue... Don's wife, Sue Rhodes, who was very precious to me, would always feed me. I'd show up at their door and knock. I was always accepted in their home. Uh, she's struggling with her health right now, and Don's struggling because of it. But that couple that's struggling had an impact for the kingdom in May and in Watauga and in Stockdale, Texas. That's a direct link that is a picture of how God works through his people. And that's the beauty of of what God does. And then on top of that, for me to be struggling, just needing some encouragement the last couple weeks, and to have them walk into Sunday school class this morning uh, means more than you could ever know. 
It's all about God's hand and God's providence and God's love for us. We have so much to be grateful for if we will recognize and walk in a relationship with that living God. We're going to get into our text after I pray. It's 1 John chapter 4. We're continuing our study of 1 John. His letter of light and love. Jesus is, is, is light for our lives, for our past, and he is love for us. And we come to one of the consummate passages, one of the, kind of an apex of 1 John today as he talks about this love of God. Let me pray with you. Father, we are grateful, and we have far more to be thankful for than we could ever enumerate. And that old hymn, count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it would surprise you what the Lord has done. Lord, if we're honest we'll recognize that we cannot count the blessings that you pour out upon us. Every breath is a blessing from you. Lord, we are grateful. Lord, I am grateful for so much today. I'm grateful for my wife who's not able to be here because she's not feeling well. I'm grateful for friends. I'm grateful for family members. I'm grateful for uh, your work in spite of us. Grateful for Don Rhodes and Ethan and Allison, and Sue, and David Williams. I'm grateful, Lord, for so many. I pray that you would move through your spirit as we study your word and understand that all of these gifts that you pour out upon us are simply a reflection of your character, of your love for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let your spirit speak where I don't know what to say. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me read the text. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. It's going to sound a little bit familiar. This is the third time that John has focused on love. He did it in chapter 2. He had a message in chapter 3 where John focused on, on love. And then this is kind of the apex package, the, the highlight it says, dear friends, let me pause right there before I continue reading, because this, we're using the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. That's what's on, up on your screen, and that's what I'm using. There's reasons that I use that, but there are times that I don't like how they translated it. And here's one of those times where you see the translation, dear friends, in this text in particular, the word that appears there in the original language is agapatoi. It is Beloved. And many of your translations will translate that word beloved. Those who are loved is what the word actually means. And this is one place that they're trying to make it more friendly to modern day English. And I think that they made a mistake here, in my opinion, because it takes away from the, from the flow of this passage. I mean, when you hear that beloved, and listen how many times the word love appears in the first few verses here. Beloved. Let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his son, his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, or beloved, if God loved us in this way, we must also must love one another. 
No one has seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he is in God. And we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. There's a lot there. I understand that. And this passage could have been broken down into two or three different sermons. And I, I, I think back to a year ago when the, when the Lord led me to, to divide out the text like this. I, I know why. The, the title of today's message is Three Great Motives for Loving Others. We've already hammered home this idea that God's love is, is crucial in our lives. That it's, it's crucial that we love. In fact, in chapter two, when we looked at this, uh, John's teaching in first John on love, uh, we talked about how love is the evidence of our fellowship with God. You don't have fellowship with God if you don't love. You have to love or, or there is no, no evidence of your fellowship. In chapter three, we saw that love is evidence of our sonship. When we love and love pours out of us, that, that love is evidence that we are one of his children. We're a child of God. And John brings all of that kind of together here in this apex, in, in this big, big picture where he drives it down to, to this idea. It comes out of the very nature and character of God. God is love. And he says it twice. And so, a lot of what we have here is not new, but I believe what we're, we see in this text is he gives us the motive that we need to love other people. Now, be real honest, I don't always want to love other people. I don't even always want to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's some of you who, there's times when you don't want to love me. I, I, I'm honest enough to say there are times when I'm not happy with what God is doing in my life, and, and I don't want to go hang out with him. That's the nature of, of, of our human hearts. Is our human hearts can be fickle. God's love is never fickle. God's love is steady and is steadfast because it comes out of his very nature. And that's where our love for others ought to come from. I want to look at these three great motives. The first one is found in verses 7 through 11. We should love others because God loved us first. That's the bottom line. Love does not begin with me. It doesn't begin because I loved God or I went searching for God. God came looking for me. He did it first and foremost in the most miraculous of ways that we're going to celebrate in this season in Advent, in the coming of Christ. He stepped out of heaven took on the form of an infant child uh, beginning inside of, of Mary and, and took on human flesh to walk among us. God loved me so much 
that he was willing to enter into the frailty of the human body to walk among us. It is because he loved me first. He came seeking me. He came to earth looking for me and you. It's because he loved us first that we ought to love others. He says, dear friends or beloved, let us love one another. It's a command. It's not an option. And remember, John is writing to the church. And so I believe that, that, that God's word teaches us to love the lost, to love those outside of the church. Okay? I believe that from other texts. But that's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about a particular love that you have for brothers and sisters in Christ. We are commanded to love each other. And we talked about this when we've covered those other two texts in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3. John, I think when he's writing this, remember some of the last words of Jesus right after he washed their feet and they took the Lord's Supper together when he said, the world is going to know you're my disciples when you love one another. And so he's commanding his disciples, his church again, love one another because love is from God. Now, the good news in that means that we don't have to work it up. Love doesn't originate with me. Love originates with God. Now, we're going to get to a little bit deeper theology here in the middle of this text when we understand that that love that originates from us can originate from inside of us because the spirit of the living God dwells in us. God commands us to love one another. Love because we were born of God and know God. The word agape that's used here... We're not going to get into detailing that Greek word. I've heard pastors do that over and over and over. There's, there's a couple of different Greek words that, that we might translate as love in English. Agape is the, is the word that has the deepest meaning because it, it's different than feelings. Okay. The first time I saw my wife, I had some feelings for her. We might use the word, I love that. But it really wasn't love. It had a, well, y'all had a marriage study this morning. So y'all, so those of you that were in growth group, I get where I'm coming from. Uh, there's, there's, you know, in, in Greek, there's the Greek word eros that describes that, that love that is connected to sexuality and, and, you know, feelings. And, you know, we, you know, the first time I held her hand, you get all tingly and you get all excited and you get all those feelings. And, and, and in our world, our world tends to think of that as love. Well, Feelings are something that, that kind of uh, come to us, right? It's something that, 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 you know, we feel good because of something. We get excited. We love something because of what it does for us. Whereas agape love comes from our being. It, it, it's, something, it's a choice that we have to make. It's something that we have to do. It's creative. It's active. It's chosen. Even when we don't feel like it, we choose to love. Every time I do a, a, a wedding or I, I do marriage counseling, one of the things I talk about is the greatest picture of, of true love that we have, I believe, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he died. You see, Jesus was in the Garden knowing that he was about to have to go to the cross, and he's, he's praying so intensely that he's sweating, and the Scripture says it's like drops of blood, whether he was actually bleeding or whether it was, it was so profusely sweating, it was like he was bleeding. We, we don't know from the original language, but, but Jesus was intensely praying and pouring his heart out to his Father, and he cries out, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. In his humanity, in his frailty, in his flesh, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross and die. Who would? He didn't want to face that beating. And yet he says, nevertheless, 
not my will, but yours be done. He chose to go to the cross because of love. He was driven there by the love he had for his father and the love that he has for us. You see that in this text, you see it in, in, in Romans chapter 5, that, that God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He chose to take that path because he loved us so much. That is the greatest picture of love. And I tell young couples, there is going to come a day, if you stay married very long, and I hope you stay married until the day you die, there's going to come a day when you wake up and you look across the bed and you go, oh, why did I marry her? <laughs> More likely, why did I marry? There's going to come a day when you're not feeling it, is what I'm saying, okay? The emotions may not be there. That, 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 that feeling that you first had when you held hands or when you had your first kiss, the feeling may have dissipated. I see way too many couples looking at each other right now. <laughs> the feeling may have dissipated, but true love never fades, it never dies because it's a choice that you've made. It's a commitment that you've made. And when a couple comes to the altar and gets married, it's not just a two-way commitment. It's not a contract between a man and a woman. It is a covenant relationship between a man, woman, and God. You, you stood before God and you've, you've made this decision. And so what a great picture of, of love. And that's why God uses uh, the marriage covenant as a picture of his love for the church throughout Scripture because it's, it's that, that deep love that's a choice. God chose us and he's asking us to love as he loves to choose to love god revealed his love in christ's atoning sacrifice you see that there in verse 9 and 10 god's love was revealed among us in this way what a beautiful picture god made his man his love manifest among us that word could be translated in us to, to manifest something, to reveal it, is to, is to make it known. God, God wanted the whole world to see what his love looked like. So he did it in this way, among us, in us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The scripture teaches us that without Christ, we're dead in our sins, we're dead in our trespasses. We have no hope of eternal life. We have no hope of, of truly the life God intended us to have outside of a relationship with his son. And God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Have you ever looked at someone, and, and look, I, I, I need to be careful of this question because, you know, I, I think sometimes we think, see things... And, in politics, and we go, man, I wish that person was just gone. But have you ever just thought, man, we'd just be better off if someone wasn't here? I wonder if God has ever looked at this world, and you know what? In fact, Scripture says he has. God looked at this world one time and decided, I'm done. And he sent a flood. He wiped it out. Then he made a promise. He said, I'm not ever going to do that again. And he gave us the promise of, of the rainbow, and God said, I'm never going to do that again. The next time, I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send a Redeemer. I know that there's times that the Lord must look at me and just think, man, it would just be a lot easier to call him home. Send that bolt of lightning, you know, send that heart attack, whatever it happens to be, and just say, Dennis, that's too much, and take me home. There's, I know he's felt that way. I felt that way toward people sometimes. 
But in his love and in his mercy, he chose not to do that. Instead, he sent his son so that we might have life and have it to its fullest, Jesus said in John 10.10. He loved us so much that he wanted us to live through him and he wants us to live with him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us. There in verse 10, and he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That word atoning means that he came to cleanse us, to wash us of our sin so that we could be made clean and stand in his presence. Our sin separated us from a holy God. But his atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which is his greatest expression of love, is the argument that John's making here. That atoning sacrifice of his son cleansed us of our sins. His sacrifice was for our sins so that we might have life. What's our greatest motive for love? That God loved us first. He loved me by creating me. He loves me by pouring out his blessings upon me. He loved me most and foremost by sending his son to die on a cross and shed his blood so that I might have life and might have forgiveness of sins. That that in and of itself ought to be enough motive for us to love. And then you end kind of this paragraph with this idea that God's love is so great and it's so mighty that it demands a response. If God loved you like that, if God loved me so much that he could send his son to die on a cross and take that brutal beating so that I could spend eternity with him no matter how messed up my life is. If God loves me that much, then that it demands that I love him back. That takes us back to verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. If you're born of God and you know God, you ought to love as God loves so our first great motive for love is because God loved us first. Our second great motive for love is love allows others to see Christ in us. That's where John goes in verses 12 through 16. The, the world is going to know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. Once again, I believe John hears those words of Jesus the night before he died ringing in his head as he writes this letter to the church. No one has ever seen God. John makes that proclamation. No one's ever got to actually see God. We can't look upon God. He's too holy. You have a few prophets who saw visions of God, who caught glimpses of God, but they can never see God in all of his fullness and all of his glory. Moses got close and it messed him up. People couldn't even look at him for a few days when he came down from the mountain, right? No one has ever seen God. So how is the world going to know God? John says, this is how the world's going to know God. When we love, when we love, when we love one another, that's how the world is going to know God. If we love one another, God's going to dwell in us. He's going to remain in us and his love is going to be made complete in us. See, here's the, the crux here. You cannot, true love, agape love cannot be understood and then acted upon. True agape love has to be acted upon as we understand it, you cannot know true love without action because true love, agape love, requires and demands action. If you're not acting out of love, then you're not loving. 
I think that's part of what gets to the heart of James that says you've, you've got to, you know, real faith is going to display itself in action. True faith is going to be fleshed out in deeds or acts of love and service. Love is evidence, verse 12 says, that God dwells in us. And we've already seen this fleshed out in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that love is an evidence of our relationship with God. But here he, he says it blatantly. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. It is evidence that God dwells in us. Our love is evidence that his spirit is at work in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he is in us. He's given us of his spirit. How does that connect? How does that flesh itself out? He goes on to say, and we have seen and we testify, the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Here's how it works out. True love, I said earlier, cannot originate from the human flesh, from me. I'm just not good enough to produce true love. True love can only originate from the spirit of the living God, from God himself, because God is love. But the promise of God, consistent throughout the New Testament, is that when we put our faith and trust in him, he places his spirit in us. John 14 says, I won't only be with you, I will be in you. Here, he, John is telling us that the spirit who dwells in us makes his love complete in us. So if we're remaining in a relationship with the Holy God, we're walking with God, you go to John 15, uh, once again, part of that, that teaching that last night of Jesus' life where John says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me produces much fruit. We're connected to the vine. And so our life is intertwined in Jesus' life and Jesus' life is being poured into our life what's going to happen is fruit is going to come out. And the first fruit of a relationship with God, the first fruit of someone who is remaining in him is love. That's why Paul, when he gives his list of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. He begins right there before he lists out peace and patience, kindness and joy and, and, and the, other, the other eight besides love. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Love is evidence that His Spirit is at work in us. I've often joked with people because there's one thing that I'll hear people say something like this. Don't ever pray for patience because God may give it to you. And you may get it the hard way. When somebody comes to me and says, I'm just not a patient person, I love just to mess with people a little bit. And I'll say something like this. Well, you must not be walking in the Spirit then. Because the scripture says the fruit of the spirit is patience. You don't have to be a patient person, but if you're walking in a relationship with the spirit of God, the scripture says that he's going to produce patience in you. You're going to produce patience. John says, if you come to me and tell me that you don't love your brother or sister, but you know God, I'm going to say you're a liar. Because the first fruit, the first fruit of a, of a person that's walking in a relationship with God, the spirit is indwelling you, is going to be love. In particular, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you can't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, how, how are you ever going to love those outside of Christ? How are you going to love the world? If you're having a hard time loving a brother or sister in Christ, then you need to examine your love relationship with the living God. But when we, when we do love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is going to be evidence that we are his. 
that we belong to him. Dr. Allen said in, in his commentary on this text, he said, our spiritual maturity is measured by our love. Our spiritual maturity is not measured by our age or how long we've been a Christian or how much we know or how much we serve or how much we give. Our spiritual maturity is measured first and foremost by our love. And if we look at that gauge in our life and and we're not seeing love for brothers and sisters in Christ, love for others coming out of our life, then we're not walking in a relationship with the living God. His spirit will show up in us. You see, as you walk through the rest of this text, it'll confess (laughs) uh, through us. Look at verse 14. We have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. The world will see that Jesus is the Savior. He'll do just what Matthew was talking about earlier in the worship time. He will point, from our lives, he will point people to Jesus because of our love. When we're truly walking in a love relationship with Christ, the Spirit is working in us to produce love. People are going to be pointed to Jesus, not back to us. And then third, love gives us confidence on Judgment Day. I love this because I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid to leave this world. And I, I have... I don't know if you'd call it a privilege, but as a pastor, I've I've had that opportunity to stand by uh, a bedside of someone who was dying of cancer, who was a clearly loving, devoted follower of Christ. Maybe they were were suffering from some other disease and they knew that their time was short. And one thing that I did not see in the eyes of a Christian who was about to pass from this world is fear. It's just not there. We don't have to be afraid of the judgment of God if we know the love of God. We're about to step into the very presence of God who sent his son to die for us. We don't have to be afraid. Love, God's love for us will give us confidence when we face judgment. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, because perfect love drives out fear. We have confidence, first and foremost, because we are his children. When you hear a, a senior saint talk about going home, it's because they know who their daddy is. They know who father is. And they're not afraid to go home because they know that their father loves them. See, if we truly know, if we'll pause just a moment to reflect on a God who loved us so much to send his son to die that he might have a relationship with us, there would be no fear whatsoever of, of stepping out of this world, there being certainly no fear of, of judgment day. The love of God gives us confidence in judgment day because we know that we are his. The love of God gives us confidence in judgment day because love drives out fear. There is no fear in love. I, y- y- y'all were in the, those of you that were in the growth group today, you were in the married study and I don't know how deep you went in there and I'm cautious in here. You know, 
my wife has seen me at my very worst, right? Intimacy in marriage means that she has seen all of me. Parts that no one else would ever see emotionally and physically, right? That's what marriage union is all about. You become one flesh. I'd be scared to death for others to see some of that. But because of love in my marriage, there's no fear. There's no intimidation where there's true intimacy. There's no reason to be afraid. When there's true intimacy in your relationship with God, there is no fear. I don't mean a a little bit. I mean, there's no fear. When you have an intimate love relationship with the living God, you can walk in confidence. You can stand in confidence. We don't have to be afraid of his judgment. Now, there's times, and and recently, uh, I've felt like God was going to discipline me, deservedly so. But a good, loving father disciplines his children, doesn't he? But I don't have to be afraid of him. I just don't like the discipline. And then finally, we're circling back to something that was up top, but Love gives us confidence at Judgment Day because we know that he loved us first. This has so much meaning to it. Bottom line is because he loved me first, me messing up, me making a mistake, me failing does not negate his love. See, if, 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 if his love for me was dependent upon my love for him, if the only reason he loved me, if the only reason he accepted me as a son, if the only reason he, he brought me into his family and adopted me into the family of God and into his kingdom, if the only reason for that is because I loved him first, then when I mess up or my love fails, then I'd have reason to be afraid because his love could be based upon my love or acceptance of him. But here's the good news. His love for me came even when I was an idiot His love for me came while I was a sinner running away from him. His love for me came while I was living in the depths of sin and rejecting him. He loved me first. And because he loved me first, his love never has an end. All he's asked me to do to to be a part of his family is to say yes to recognize that he is who he says he is, that he sent his son to die for my sins and and to come and say, yes, Lord, I want to be a part of your family. Cleanse me and make me a part of your family. And and when I did that as a 12-year-old boy, he did exactly that. He accepted me into his family. I've made a lot of mistakes since then. And there's a lot of reasons for God not to love me, but he never stopped loving me even when I didn't love him back. So I don't have to be afraid when judgment comes because it's not dependent upon my love for him. It's dependent upon his love for me. And because he loves me unconditionally, he loved me first, I don't have to be afraid when judgment comes. I want to give you the postscript to this text before we we finish. It's the last verse there. And John circles back once again and he kind of sums it up and he says, look, guys, And I I listed this on my notes as a postscript. We have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So he's going to sum it up. If you have a love relationship with the holy God, you have this command to love each other. When we have the the, the invitation here in a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word. I want to do a couple things. First of all, 
if you're not certain that if you that, that you are part of God's family, please, please don't leave here until you get that settled. It's not easy. I know that. Taking that step to count the cost and say, Lord, here's my here's what I'm giving up to follow. And, and I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to accept you as my Savior and Lord. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. It is simple. God simply asks that you come and receive a gift that he's offering you. So if, if, if you've heard the gospel today in this text where he says that God displayed his love towards you, that he sent his son to die on a cross for you, to be an atoning sacrifice for your sins, it's right there. If you've heard that and God is speaking to your heart and you need to come and give your life to Christ and surrender to him, I'm going to plead with you to do that as soon as the, the time of response, the invitation. The second church, and this is for, for, for the church, if you know that there's somebody in your church family who you're struggling to love, you need to pray about that and give that over to the Lord. I'm going to plead with you to do that today. Come give it over to him. You don't have to come talk to me or Nathan. Come to the altar and pray. Make it right. If you need to go to that person and ask for forgiveness, I'll tell you one of the things that lifted a heavy load for me this week was someone who, who I was praying for, I was struggling with, just sent me an apology. And it wasn't a church member, it was somebody outside that one of those other things that was going on in my life I was talking about. And it just restored the relationship immediately for this person to come and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I may need to go say that to somebody. So ask the Spirit to search your heart. And if you need to go restore a love relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, make sure you do that. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.